This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to talk about Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott, which was first published in 1820. I heard the audiobook version from Tantor with uh, Simon Preble. runs about 18 hours. Uh, you, you did the same, right? I did indeed. <laughs> and a little bit of Kindle, you said? Yes, and uh, yes, the Kindle edition. And uh, <laughs> three comic book adaptations. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't, re- I didn't realize you'd read all three. Uh, well, I went, I went through them just to see kind of... Um, what they put in and what they put out, because there's also the the, the BBC one-hour um, radio adaptation of it, sure, which of this, remarkably yeah. compresses the book into sixty Indeed. minutes. I just uh, I just noticed that there was a 1970s version that did the same thing, and uh, there uh, it was for the CBS on our General Mills Radio Adventure Theater. Which, uh, in that one, they, they just say, yeah, this is not the complete novel. <laughs> but that's okay, you can go read the complete novel. Um, the, it's a, I think it's an imp- immensely important book, this book. And I, I do like uh, looking at adaptations of important books because they tend to magnify or compress different aspects of of the story or... I saw one adaptation of Ivanhoe, a 1982 version. Apparently, it's immensely popular in Scandinavia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That uh, compresses Wamba and Girth into one character, which is kind of a strange uh, thing to do. Um, Obviously, that changes the plot quite a bit because they they separate. Um, And, uh, yeah, I, I think looking at adaptations can be quite useful at seeing what the original... Uh, is doing right and what, what the adaptations do maybe sometimes better? Well, this is it. You always get this kind of, um, refinement, um, uh, particularly with, an, I mean, a novel like this where it's, um, I mean, it is, it's a huge book. <laughs> it uh, is. A, which is, you know, sure. it's a challenge even for like a, a proper three hour film to, to cover everything in it. And so. Absolutely. Things will be changed and swapped around, and I think it, it, it is very interesting, as particularly with, um, say, books of kind of this period. You often find the version of the story you know is actually a version from a film or TV adaptation that's become the standard way to tell the story, rather mm-hmm. than what's in the original text. I think my first encounter with Ivanhoe was uh, that uh, I think it was a Disney cartoon version. Uh, with a fox as as Robin Hood, and they completely excised <laughs> they completely excised uh, Ivanhoe. He's not in it, um, and you know it's it's got the the archery contest, which we we apparently this is the first uh, instance of that in or at least the archery contest with the splitting of the arrow is uh, first appears in this book. Well, it, it, there is an older version of it in the Robin Hood ballads. Um, with the splitting of the arrow? Um, I, even with the, the splitting of the arrow. But it wasn't Robin. It was um, one of Robin's uh-huh. merry men doing it. Uh-huh. Um, 
Interesting. I noticed the one thing they always leave out of adaptations is the the follow up. Presumably, that's the one that that uh, I, it must be that Sir Walter Scott thought would be the uh, the capper, which is where he first he splits the arrow, and then everybody's like, "Wow, amazing!" And then he goes and he gets a willow wand, places it in the field, and shoots, splits that, and that's the one nobody uses. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's it's um, too unbelievable or something. I'm not sure. Um, well, it's one of those things. I think it's kind of it'd probably be um, slightly more believable or more kind of accepted in the constraints of daring do fiction for the original audience who are probably more familiar with archery than we are. Mm. <laughs> um, whereas now it just seems a bit a bit too much but uh i mean i know there is a whole thing about the tale of uh, um archers and you know uh, how well they could you know sh- shoot things you know with astonishing marksmanship that comes up quite a lot in uh, folk tales of thrown objects and you know impossibly thin targets and whatnot mm-hmm. so, and it was well, will scarlet sorry you do splits the arrow it's in, ah. uh, just found my reference yeah it was in um a, a version of the uh Queen Catherine Ballad, um, which uh, obviously Scott must have been familiar with because uh, he lifts it and has Robin do it. He's he's in, uh, I, I'm amazed how well read this guy is. Um, you know, considering he's living in the very early 19th century, late 18th century, um, he seems to be just um, incredibly well read. I'm surprised people had uh, access to that many books. Uh, well, it's one that he, I mean, he was like an educated man, and it was kind of, I think he was around at a time when, um, kind of the great modern libraries, as they would become, and the great modern museums were sort of being uh, assembled, and, um, people suddenly had this, a renewed interest in the past and to trying to clarify and sort it out. Um, I, found, I was reading around, I found it interesting to, uh, to note that, you know, he was actually, at the time, he was widely, um, uh, not pillory, but he got a lot of stick for being historically inaccurate in Ivanhoe, which, mm. uh, and apparently, you know, his other novels, um, like Rob Roy, are actually, you know, even more historically accurate. Uh, whereas this, you know, in the introduction, he does say he's, he's took liberties with history, and, um, Mm-mm. but, you know, it still re- has a remarkably kind of authentic feel, and, um, and when it isn't being authentic, it's being funny. I, I think mm. that, I mean, it, it, it's got a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, I, I guess, it's, it's plump, <laughs> as some people have described the, the text, the, the way description is deep. Um, it's quite plump. However, um, I think there's a lot of scenes that are really hilarious. The, the scene with the Friar Tuck, in uh, Friar Tuck and uh, King Richard, uh, where they're both pretending to be other people. Yes. <laughs> and they're talking about, you know, you can call me this, and you, um, he can call the, uh, the other guy that. And, and then they're talking about the food. That chapter is, I mean, it's a chunky chapter, but it's hilarious. It was like, this is, this is very high-level, um, very Shakespearean. And I know, obviously, he's read Shakespeare. He's quoting... Uh, Merchant of Venice, amongst other things, in in the chapter headings. But it, it, this could be a, a play by Shakespeare. I would, I you know, like if I didn't know better, 
I would have said, oh, this is a Shakespearean plot. <clears throat> well, it is. It is it's very Shakespearean. And uh, I think one of the things that um, uh, surprised me on this reread, um, I mean, I, I saw a TV version when I was quite young, which inspired me to dig out the novel, uh, which I sort of ploughed through dutifully and quite enjoyed, even though it was a difficult read. But coming back to it this time, um, with having a, a wider a wider selection of books to compare it to, is that consider this is 1822, um, and it is huge, but it's amazingly um, pithy and punchy. Oh, yeah. And um, although, you know, he does, his descriptions aren't very vivid, it's kind of, it's not the huge slabs of describe every little thing that you get in later Victorian novels. And in this, there's actually a lot of dialogue and banter. That's what, yes. <laughs> uh, which, you know, it does give it um, a theatrical and a, and a dramatic quality, which actually, you know, does make some chaps actually fly by because it is this sort of to and fro and um, arguments and discussions. And uh, it works really, really well. I mean, uh, considering, you know, it, it's such a big book, it is, a lot of it is because there's so much talking in it. <laughs> there's a lot of and, talking, but there's actually a lot of, like, Actually, like a lot of things happening too. I, I mean, it's not uh, as epic as the Lord of the Rings in the number of you know situations where people get together in a group and have to decide on what they're going to do next. But it is a. I mean, it is uh, as there's as much going on as any one of the Lord of the Rings. You know, like the the Fellowship of the Ring or the Two Two Towers. It, it's a chunky book, but it has as much going on. I would say it, you know it's not about the you know, talking about the countryside as they go by, but it is talking about sort of the 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 country itself, right? Yeah. Talking about the yeah. situation, about uh, and I, I I think you know this is a master writer. You can see why this book was was so popular because it's everybody's got motivations. Every single character's got motivations. <laughs> even even the comedic Athelstane, right? His motivation <laughs> is, is to have another drink and. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, oh, yes, we'll defend our honor tomorrow. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, such a great, uh, I mean. There's the, such a the, false staff to him, isn't there, actually? Oh, he's so good. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm talking Athelstane, but also, uh, I'm talking Walter Scott. I mean, I, I want to read more of this guy's books because this is, this is very, very good writing. And it is, it is got a sort of old fashioned sensibility with regard to, you know, we know the color of everybody's uh, cloak, mm. right? We know, we know um, all the shield devices. And oh yeah, <laughs> we know all of that. Um, mm. And yet, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. For example, like where is Isaac staying when he shows up at the uh, the list at Ashby? Is he like in a tent, or <laughs> is he staying with a you know a friendly Jew Jewish family there? We don't know a lot of like where did that where did that uh, uh, armor come from? It's not detailed, I don't think, in the book. No, no. I mean, we know how he gets the money to buy it, but it's, he turns up with his own custom device and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and everything is gone. Okay. <laughs> uh, we also don't find um, um, when Ivan and Co is uh, undercover and he's leaving the castle. He uh, persuades Girth by whispering in his ear. We never find <laughs> out what that is. <laughs> Uh, well, I want to I want to talk about the relationship between Ivanhoe and Girth because I think there's some good stuff in there, um, and of course Girth and Wamba, and I, almost every character has a good dynamic with every other character mm. that they 
spend any time with. Um, one of, one of the things that struck me, I think is the second chapter. Um, uh, it said this, this second Emmaus describing girth. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is a, this is a reference to the Odyssey mm-hmm. when Odysseus comes back from the wars he 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 shows up on his uh Ithaca and the first guy he meets is uh Emmaus who is his uh, his swineherd and he ends up taking that guy into his confidence and then uh he goes eventually gets his son and his his wife on board and then they kill everybody in the house um and i i was realizing as i was going through the book that actually that's the kind of what Ivanhoe is is it's the return to Ithaca, uh, that portion of the Odyssey, because of course these guys are coming from the Holy Land, right? Mm. Um, they're they're all been scattered on their ships, <laughs> and they come in disguise, just as Odysseus does. That's true. Yes, yes. And it's uh, it's not like I don't think he did it accidentally. I think he did it on purpose because the references to the Odyssey mm. are not, um, you know, just offhand. Um, the the entire plot of the novel is sort of a uh, um, um, focusing in on the island itself and and all of the themes that are going on in that portion of the Odyssey are actually going on in Ivanhoe as well. So, for example, there's the uh, the usurpation, right? Yes. Yeah. In, in this case, we don't have Richard's wife being married, although the country itself is kind of the one that's being <laughs> wooed, right? Um, and there's resistance to that on the island, uh, but there's also um, people who are, you know, demanding that it happen. And uh, there's, uh, an, I mean, you could go into a ton of detail examining exactly who is mapping onto who, um, but I think just the theme uh, itself, uh, taking this very famous epic and taking that one section and saying that that's what this is, that's an amazingly brilliant thing to do. It works so well in this story. Well, there's also, um, um, you know, something that's kind of not apparent to us, but would have been more to the original readers, is there's a, a parallel with the relationship uh, that was occurring in Scots time between uh, sure. uh, the, the Scots and the English over the governance of Scotland. Um, and you have this kind of thing of these sort of uh, landlord colonists mm-hmm. and um, who are, you know, effectively coming in as a, a ruling class. Um, and, you know, that that's, I'm sure, kind of, you know, a lot of the, the native Scots readers would be picking up on that kind of... Um, Sort of subtext that you know the, there's an analogy there to be made of the of the Saxons of being the Scots who are under the English yoke rather than the Norman yoke. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also you know what's interesting is that you've got um, characters lead heroes like Loxley and uh, and Ivanhoe himself are Saxons, but ultimately they are loyal to King Richard even though he's a Norman, but he's the right sort of Norman. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of curious because um, the, I'm wondering why he's so popular. Why is King Richard so popular? Well, he's not King John, right? <laughs> and I think you know John. John is the filling in for his brother while the brother's away uh, playing at war 
which mm. is, uh, you know, uh, going back to the theme of the Odyssey as well. But um, when Richard dies, who takes the throne? It's King John. <laughs> and then what happens? Uh, basically, the, the same rebellion we see in Ivanhoe, um, you know, sort of against King John's rule, mm. um, happens, but it's the, the lords, right? And that's the Magna Carta. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, John was such a shitty king. <laughs> Everybody who wrote the histories of it seems to agree that, uh, Richard, even though he's not here and not, you know, and he's taxed, like, it's not a unvarnished, uh, love for Richard in this story. There is some criticism of him being away. Um, and, and, you know, take, one guy takes the money for his own, uh, uh, adventures and the other guy takes the money for his own pleasures. Mm. But they're both taking money from the Saxons. And, but both aren't actually ruling the land terribly well. They're essentially, right. it's robber barons. <laughs> you That's- know, it's kind of, uh, you know, if you, you know, if you can take a castle and hold it, it's yours. <laughs> and that's that's uh, what happens in mm. the too, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was all these little fiefdoms of, uh, um, is where the feudal system eventually broke down. <laughs> I think uh, the 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 three uh, the three villains, uh, the three knight villains, are pretty interesting. Uh, just a way of looking at the the responses to you know, like how, why are they villainous and what do they mm. want? So. Uh, the, the bad, bad, bad baddie, that is the best baddie. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, like the most charismatic, I think, baddie is Brian Dubois Gilbert. He's the Templar. Yes. Um, yeah. who's taken a vow of chastity and poverty, right? And, uh, and he's after, uh, not Rowena, he's after, uh, Rebecca. Yes. Mm. Then there's uh, Reginald Front de Boeuf, who <laughs> Front de Boeuf, Front de Beef, Front de Beef. That's what I kept calling front him when I was reading it. Front, front yeah, of front beef. beef, Front of Beef. Um, he's the one who's already taken a castle, and what does he want now? He wants Isaac of York, so he can roast him over a fire until he get, gives up all his money. Oh, and this is kind of what it, what what his whole career is. <laughs> it's, just, exactly. it's just capturing people, extorting their money from them. Um, and not normally um, Jews. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> pretty bad, even by Norman standards. And then uh, there's Maurice de Bracy, who is uh, sort of the middle middle guy. He's, I guess he gets sort of the least attention. He's mm-hmm. after Mina, um, but he also he ends up unlike uh, the other two. He ends up uh, still alive at the end of the story. Um, and in part, I think that's because he's kind of like the middle path on on the knighthood. You know, w- three ways of going for knighthood. Mm. So, uh, Dubrog Gilbert is is like he's all about uh, war and God, right? War yeah. and God. But then, when you look at it det- in close in details, he's willing to throw all that away. He's not interested. You know. In in the 1997 TV adaptation, they do a really good job of of focusing in on his character and showing what's in the book, but also like showing it a, a little more than they do with the other characters. How he doesn't really care about God. He doesn't really care about uh, you know what's right or wrong. He cares about his own um, code, but he's willing to throw away all of his own code. <laughs> Um, if Rebecca will just give up, like he, mm. he basically is obsessed with her, and it's a it's almost beautiful how 
obsessed. It's 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 kind of like uh, Arthurian. How obsessed? I mean, it's creepy stalkerish, <laughs> but it's kind of beautiful. Well, the thing is, there's a fine line between um, courtly love and stalking. I think. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, kidnapping and. But, but, but you're right. There is that that, that kind of. He's a kind of he's a villain almost by dint of being a star-crossed lover. <laughs> yeah, that's what he sees himself mm. as, is being a star-crossed lover. I mean, that's what and I find interesting about this novel is that kind of you do have a villains who are painted in shades of dark grey rather than absolutely. He's not just a sheriff of Nottingham moustache twirler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has a motivation for what he's doing and his own his own sort of set of values and why he's doing it, and uh, that's kind of it's. Really interesting, is it? I guess you far-sighted writing on Scott's part. Oh yeah, and so De Bracy, when he's confronted with Rowena, who's like, "I'm not going to marry you. Um, let me go." Um, he's like, he's like much more um, uh, cool. <laughs> we would say much more of a modern man. He, you know, he's disappointed, um, but he he's going to be on the right side of history in this case. He's not going to force himself on mm. her. Um, and, you know, eventually he's on the right side of, uh, you know, the monarchy as well. He switches sides and, you know, is forced to, uh, I think, I think he lives in the book, doesn't he? Oh, yes, he does. As well. uh, Richard pardons him. Or Richard if, pardons yeah. him and he goes off to, uh, he, he has to leave France, uh, leave for France or something. Mm. Um, but in the, in the 97 adaptation, uh, Prince John kills him. Uh, for, uh, for leaving. Um, and that's the other thing is, that's interesting is Prince John is normally considered the villain of these sort of stories. But if that's true, at the end, uh, the two brothers r- are reconciled, mm. right? Uh, there's no like, I'm gonna get you for trying to overtake my throne. It's like, you've been naughty. Swear fealty to me. Okay. Everything's cool. <laughs> Back in line, essentially. Back in line. Yep, you were. You, that's fine. You're allowed to play while I'm away, but back in line. Even though, really, they were they were in conflict, uh, at least in part. Although, I'm saying that's it, the, that's the traditional uh, fictional uh, rendition that you know Johnny is the is the weak, spiteful, unworthy king mm-hmm. uh, who is going to steal the crown, the, the throne, and the crown, the crown. Compress them. <laughs> Going to steal both from Richard while he's away by nefarious means. Well, whereas in this, is is more. I say, is it quite interesting that sort of considering King John is such a, a large part of sort of the Robin Hood mythos and this sort of era, he's he's pretty much a backstage role. He's more of a presence in this novel. Hmm. Uh, there's a number of minor characters. Uh, you know, I mentioned Alphonstein. Uh, I think he's, he's a really fun character. You can see the actors having fun playing that role. Mm. He's, just, he's just sort of a fop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, always putting off today what he can do tomorrow. And, and the lines he's given in the book are very funny. You know, he's always, he's, yes, that's, that's a nice speech you're giving there, Cedric. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 and I agree with you wholeheartedly. These guys are barbarians. They haven't, Fed us lunch yet. <laughs> like, he's, he's almost a hobbit when it comes to food. He's not so interested in adventure. He's more interested in the quality of the wine and, mm. the, uh, you know, how much venison was served. And 
And when um, I was, I, I think I tweeted to you um, uh, when he eventually is killed and then comes back to life. <laughs> um, that story he describes, it's like a comedic version of uh, a story by Edgar Allan Poe or Guy de Maupassant. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up in a tomb. The, the priests there are drinking to his health or to his memory, I guess. And uh, and he's like, um, he starts moaning, and and they come and they start hitting him. <laughs> because they think he's a revived spirit or, or something. And then um, <laughs> he's like, he he beats them off, and then uh, he starts wandering around the castle, and they they. Tie him down. <laughs> it is the, the premature burial uh, in the fall of the House of Russia done as fast, oh, really. It is. it is, and and then he is eventually, uh, you know, they. Uh, I guess after they've, it, it, it's not explained in the book, but we can intuit what's going on is the priests there are drunk, right? And so they they don't quite realize what's going on. And then when they're so, more sober, they're like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> killing this guy when we're trying to hey, what should we do they're having the funeral <laughs> you know it's like they don't know what to do about it it's hilarious it reminded me of the, the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail with the uh, the man coming around collecting bodies who died from the plague can you take sure. this one hang on is he still alive <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling better no you're not you're kidding yourself that's right <laughs> it's very um it, it, it's also hilarious because um, for a book about, you know, all this combat, who really gets killed? Nobody's really killed in the book. <laughs> and there's lots and lots of fighting. There's lots of, you know, I, I assume that there are dead bodies on the floor in certain battle scenes, uh, but nobody's really killed. Well, it's, one of those, it's that classic boy's own adventure of where... Yes. Um, there are, there's lots of big fights, there's jousts, there's warfare, castles get on certain fire, but much mm-hmm. like the A-team, um, <laughs> there's no lingering shots of corpses or anyone you know has died. <laughs> so, the, well, the very Athelstein was supposed to stay dead, but um, it was uh, Scott's publishers liked him so much he demanded uh, <laughs> he gets a reprieve. Very, yeah, it feels very much like a... Um, it, it's like one of those coincidence. It's like he's playing with coincidence. How you know things just happen to happen at the same time. Isn't that? <laughs> oh wow! It's amazing. Like it's a Deus Ex Machina sort of feel to it, but because it's done uh, comedically, I think it's pretty um, effective. And uh, I did realize there is one dead person, uh, Burika. Remember, she's the um, oh the elderly woman who has been locked in uh, the front of Thieves Castle. It, Mm. Yeah, his uh, front de Boeuf and front de Boeuf's father took the castle, I guess, mm. uh, from a Saxon family. Um, it killed everybody except for the the maiden, and she's grown elderly in that house. And then she gets her revenge. She gets her revenge by burning down the castle, killing herself. She gives a big <laughs> speech. That's right. Yes, of, uh... it's it's not all sunny. It's not all like uh, happily ever after. There's a lot going on in this book, and it, it, it's very powerful. Um, I, wa- I wanted to talk about also, uh, you know, we're talking about the the preceding of the book, what what he's working from, and what it shows up in the book. But um, this is an amazingly popular series of books, the Waverly books. Do you know much about them? I guess we talked about one of them, Rob Roy. 
Um, I don't know too much about them. It's, um, other than I say, uh, Ivanhoe is considered to be the kind of um, the ugly duckling or the odd man out. Yeah, it's not Scottish. Yeah, uh, and also this one is very much a boy's own adventure or a romance, as uh, Scott yes, called it. It's whereas, literally a romance, yeah. Well, the others are actually a lot more, say, rooted in, uh, in many cases, actually a lot more recent history and a lot more kind of grounded, whereas this is kind of almost fantastical history. It nearly. absolutely is. It's, it's, it's almost a fantasy, mm. um, in the same way that Earth Arthurian stuff is almost a fantasy. The, the, the effects of magic here are... There's a uh, pretty Jew uh, who who can heal people <laughs> using uh, presumably natural uh, means, and mm. there's a witch, uh, according to some people, but they're one and the same person, right? Um, there's not a lot of uh, m- magic of anything other than the way it's written, I think. <laughs> but it feels it feels a lot like Prisoner of Zenda. You can see the connection, I think. Uh, or Prisoner of Zenda feels a lot like this book. Sort of like a, a, a much lighter, fluffier version. Shorter, fluffier yeah, yeah. version. I mean, it is kind of, it's, it's fantastical, not in so much as, um, say, ghosts or witches or goblins in it, but it is, I think, more the, um, um, that sort of, the fantasy of an adventure, of going on a mm. quest, of, uh, of being a noble knight. Which um, having a whole bunch of guys living in the woods <clears throat> who uh, who <laughs> apparently <laughs> sustain themselves solely on venison. <laughs> well, it's a fairly lean, fat-free, good diet, <laughs> lots of uh, lots of fresh air. Um, always, uh, the Robin Hood and their merry man always seem to be uh, camping in a new spot because there's there's no like fixed structures. Whenever it rains, I guess they they just take shelter under a tree. I mean. It's basically like being homeless men, but they haven't set up a camp. <laughs> so I think there's, you know, if you if you watch the uh, Douglas Fairbanks version, which I, I think is fairly influenced by this book of uh, Robin Hood, uh, that's got, you know, it's it, it's fantastical. And you know, when Richard uh, declares himself uh, in front of Loxley, eventually they. They trade names, right? And we finally learn, oh, big surprise, surprise, that it's Robin Hood. Mm. <laughs> He's been going by Loxley. Um, uh, that's the other thing. None of the surprises in the book are actually surprising, right? Like, the Black Knight, who could it be? Well, this is it. We, we, we've, we've seen this done many times in various versions of Robin Hood, of where King I, Richard I'm, comes I'm, back incognito. I'm not sure that, that the audience wouldn't know, though. I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, pretty uh, telegraphed. From you know, even in the eighteen twenties, I would guess that people would have guessed pretty obviously. Don't you? Um, possibly. Uh, it's well, it's. Uh, I said this, this. This book was insanely popular. Um, That's true. I mean, it, this was. You know, we are talking a, a proper equivalent of, you know, a Stephen King or a J.K. Rowling style phenomena no, here. That's not. No, that's not big enough because there's no television. There's no mm. radio. There's no internet. There's no. There's almost no newspapers. There's like there's there's newspapers if you're in the city. Uh, and what else is there? There's books. And but books and the stage. I mean, this is why there was. Within, and that's it. Within six months, there was at least six different stage versions of Ivanhoe in production touring the country. 
uh, you can you can see this the influence of this book is insanely big and this this book series when it was published um it was yeah i was saying you know the waverly novels right mm. the reason they're called the waverly novels is not because they're all a series it's not like you know the wheel of time series it's because we didn't uh, they didn't know the author right it was not attributed it it was by the author of waverly which is the first book so first book comes out and it says waverly by somebody right and the second book comes out <laughs> and it says uh, by the author of Waverly, and the third book comes out by the author uh, uh, by the author of Waverly, and the the, the second book, right? And the, and then when it comes to Ivanhoe, it's by the uh, by the author of Waverly, and <laughs> and so uh, if you if you look at the Wikipedia entry for the Waverly novels, um, it points out that there are several, uh, at least six uh, cities or towns around the world that are named Waverly. And they're all named after this series mm. of books. Uh, the, I, I was just doing a little thinking, and one of the things uh, in my research, I discovered that uh, Sir Walter Scott's house in Scotland was called Abbotsford. Well, actually, right near me is a town called Abbotsford. I looked it up. It is called Abbotsford <laughs> after his house, right? <laughs> That town in British Columbia here used to be, you know, have a hundred, uh, hundred people in it. I, I guess at the time it was founded or whatever. Now it's got a hundred thousand people in it. It's like the, the influence of this book is, is not, not just, um, on, you know, little things like that, but uh, the other, one of the things that most intrigued me about wanting to read Ivanhoe, I was, uh, I guess last year or the year before I was reading about Ivanhoe as I, tend to read a lot about these books. And one of the things I, I heard was, or read, I guess, was that Ivanhoe was immensely popular in the southern United States. And I'm not sure if that was before the Civil War or after the Civil War or both, <laughs> but you can totally see it because what's it about? It's about the invasion of a country mm-hmm. by a foreign power the landholders there are slave owners, right? <laughs> Who consider themselves, uh, the, the true, uh, you know, upholders of chivalry and all that is good and right. And, uh, yes, yes. Go to war, uh, in that spirit, right? The, 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 the slave owners of the South are not saying, yeah, we're the evil ones in this war. They're saying, no. Um, slavery is an honorable tradition. <laughs> My family is happy. <laughs> and what's in Ivanhoe? Girth and Wamba are slaves. That, I mean, in, in a way that probably is ahistorical, right? They've got, they've got collars, uh, metal collars on. We, we learned that in the very first chapter. Mm. They're, they're the slaves uh, of, of Cedric. Uh, these noble, uh, <laughs> noble Saxons who have been defeated. You can see it being popular before the war. You can and see after, yes. <laughs> because it is totally speaking to people as to, you know, how to li- it's it's like this is the this is the amazing thing about fiction is people sort of undersell undersell it, you know, like okay, we got uh Darwin, you know, and he comes out with Origin of Species, that affects a lot of people because it makes makes them start thinking about uh, you know, the human being's relationship to uh, nature and whether we are created or not, blah, 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 blah. Well, we know that how that influence 
happens. We know how the Communist defen- uh, Manifesto happens to uh, change, you know, world history. You know, reverses the ca- reverses uh, sides on World War One, and you know, all sorts of weird things start happening in Europe and the Cold War. And all of this stuff comes out of that. But the influence of fiction is totally un undersold. Uh, obviously, you know, we know Tolkien uh, had a, an immense impact on fiction, uh, you know, the fantasy genre as it exists um, is, you know, derived from his popularity, but that's not to say that that's the only way it can, it can't just influence other fiction. It influences people. When When you model your own behavior or justify your own behavior based on books. Well, I think, I think it's something that we're in danger, and certainly it has, has been lost sight of um, in the modern world, is the fact that um, people understood fiction, I think, better and in a different way in ages past. People had an understanding of allegory, symbolism, and kind of the way something that isn't true can reveal the truth through the medium of storytelling. And, yeah. you know, uh, people forget, because you, you assume books, books have been around for ages, but we forget the novel is actually a fairly recent um, historic, uh, historical uh, literary phenomena. You know, mm-hmm. and Ivanhoe was one of the, you know, one of the early novels. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? It kind of, it set the template not only for like a lot of different kind of uh, uh, genre uh, fiction from kind of, you know, boys' own adventures to, you know, actual proper ladies' kind of romance novels and historical novels and fantasy novels. But, you know, it also actually shaped the whole concept of the novel, the novel as an entertainment. But it's also, easy to forget that. <laughs> it, it is, it is, um, you know, it, it is, this is the time when, you know, uh, this is before Charles Dickens, before Edgar Allan Poe, before people were mostly making livings as writers, you know, now when we think of writers, we think of people making li- livings at them. I don't think that that's actually true. I think most writers don't make livings <laughs> as, uh, uh, or that is novelists don't gen- t- tend to make livings at it. They tend to supplement their, <laughs> their income or something. Uh, but Sir Walter Scott is like basically the first guy to make his living at writing books. And, that that influence is, is like why are people buying them? It's it, we say you know it's it's for entertainment. It's to fill those hours between the 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 sun going down and the fact that you know your friends can't stay over for cards anymore. You've got to go out and you know they got to go home because they got to get to their own beds. Uh, well, what do you do between those hours? You got to fill fill your fill your hours for something to do. Uh, maybe your wife's not particularly interested in having sex that night. You got to read a book. Right. But it isn't just filling the hours, because unlike a a game of cards, um, what you're looking at is models, models Mm. of action, models of how, you know, this is why humans love stories. Right. Is because we look at it and we say, oh, that guy's a baddie. I wouldn't act like that. Or I can see that guy. That's the guy. I know, Right. And aha, I see what's going on there. And that intaking of the artificial world is uh, what they say science fiction does. Uh, and I, I think that this is true. 
Uh, you know, when you read 1984, if you've actually read the book and you're not some horrible monster, it changes you and helps you. Mm. It improves you. It says there are some stuff that people can do that's really bad, and we got to stay away from that because it will be really bad. And uh, I guess <laughs> a lot of people faked reading it in school because <laughs> we go down that direction a lot of times, and it's kind of <laughs> scary. But um, if you read Ivanhoe and you really accept it, you start thinking, well, what is honorable action? You know, what the power of oaths in this book seems to be more powerful than almost anything any kind of spell, it, it, you know, the way uh, Front de Boeuf takes his oath is he ignores them, right? He doesn't, he's, oh, it's all about the rapacious acquisition of more stuff. Uh, whereas de Bracy takes it fairly seriously, mm. um, but he falls in with a bad lot and he redeems himself. And then uh, our most interesting character, Brian de Bois-Gilbert, he, he his backstory i i'm pretty sure in the book i'm i'm getting confused with different versions his backstory in the book is that he had a great love he lost her and now he he went off to war to find something else to do he embraced a a, a whack job a monkish a warish religion that's all about increasing the power of the grand master um eventually the I, I think that we see in Ivanhoe that eventually the the um, uh, Templars are going to get destroyed. I, I think he's telling us, look, you know, wink, wink, it's coming because these Templars are out of out of control. Um, uh, Richard banishes them right from uh, from England, doesn't he? In the book? Yes, I think so. Um, that's you know. The punishment. I mean, that it, it, that's it's one of those punishments that now it sounds very um, uh, yeah, lame to us to, to a day. But yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of the kind of times. Kind of, you know, when you lived in a smaller world, and you know, most people wouldn't leave their own town, being actually, you know, banned from your own country, and you know, sent away from everything you know was pretty harsh. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, there is a historic historicity to it too. I mean, he doesn't. The popes do have power. The pope did have power. These guys were out of control. The only check they had was their grandmaster and the and the pope himself. And the pope liked the idea that he had an army uh, of guys who can go and put pressure on anybody who's who's you know getting lippy. Um, so there's that historicity portion to it. But Brian de Bois Gilbert, he's got this. He's like. I'm obsessed with love, the idea of love. I'm obsessed with you, your, the vision of beauty. Um, I love your will. I love your defiance. Love me, love me, love me, love me, love me. Um, and when she rejects them at every turn, uh, it's almost like Rebecca's the Ivanhoe of, of the female in this mm. book, right? When she uh, is so strong in the face of his uh, onslaught, uh, he is destroyed in the sense that uh, he's going to have to be destroyed. He, he, his sense of honor is such that he won't honor anything because he's <laughs> not. It's very, it's very great dynamic. I, I, I also wanted to talk about uh, the very interesting role that the adaptations do with with the Jewish segments of this book. What, what did, what did you, what did you think? Uh, 
of the actual book version versus the adaptations. Usually they, they sweeten it up quite a bit. Yeah. So the adaptations tend to reduce Rebecca to a love interest. She's the rival love interest of, oh, will they, won't they? Oh, no, she won't. Yeah. And Isaac of York is, is just the not, not quite the Obi-Wan figure, but he's that kind of the kind old man who helps the hero and, you know, also will need to be rescued. Um, whereas in the actual book, um, I, I think it's far more interesting because you're getting, again, this sense of history you don't get in the adaptations of that, you know, at the time, um, you know, Jews didn't have full citizenship, citizenship rights in England or indeed through a lot of Europe. They were, they were persecuted. They were seen as, you, you know, you know, they were kind of, on one hand, they were tolerated because they were allowed to, um, they're fulfilling a need. Do usury and be yeah. bankers, which was at the time was considered unchristian. Um, right. no, <laughs> uh, no but, problem with that today anymore, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, <laughs> and you know, and so that they were they were tolerated and hated, and uh, and you know, uh, and you you know, I think this novel in particular, it's kind of. It's kind of highly unusual that it's kind of it's kind of breaking with literary tradition, which you know, let's be honest, was somewhat anti-Semitic, totally and would continue yeah. continue to be anti-Semitic. That's what's uh, so shocking about this book is is it's not anti-Semitic. I think it's, yeah. it's he. I mean, Sir Walter Scott seems like a, a really decent guy, mm. uh, and considering you know he, this book is almost two hundred years old, um, the fact that you know he's got he's got Isaac being a stereotypical, you know, money grabbing Jew, but he's not only that, you know, he's, he's saying, well, that's actually, you know, like the scene where he's counting out the money from, from Wamba. Mm. Uh, and he's, he's, he's like, Oh, your master's so great. And then he starts counting. And then I think it, it goes on for a few pages where he's, he's saying, uh, you know, 89, Oh, and he's such a handsome young man, and 90, and he's so honorable, 91, and, hmm, this point, this coin has a ding out of it. Oh, no matter, no matter, right? The, the, uh, you know, he's gotta get paid thing, and Wamba talking about, uh, you know, you can't trust him, master, he's a, he's a usurer, right? Mm. This is, this sense that the characters are, are, our mistrusting of the Jew is there, but there's the sense also that the characters are getting a full dimension because Isaac isn't only that when, when uh, there's a really great scene, actually when front to boof, I'm pretty sure this is in the book. I'm, I'm really confused now watching all the different movie versions <laughs> um, and uh, listening to the book and reading all about it. Uh, there's a scene where front to boof is roasting, uh, Isaac over the fire. Yes. And he says, the hot bars. Yeah. And he's like, I don't, uh, you know, I'm going to roast you. I'm going to roast you. And then, uh, he's roasting him. And then he's, he completely, Isaac completely shuts down and says, you're not getting a penny. If my daughter's hurt, you can burn me to a crisp. That's fine. You cannot hurt my daughter. And in front of us, like you have a daughter. And, <laughs> And he gets, he, he actually is, his armor is penetrated, right? 
in the sense that he actually almost becomes a human being for a second. That is, uh, I'm talking about uh, Front de Boeuf, becomes a human being because he he's like, oh, uh, you are actually touching my heart, Jew. Ah, back to roasting. <laughs> and it's like, whoa! Hey, there's there's the, the a multitude of looking at it and like when Loxley stops stops them in the forest right um, he has to be defended by the Black Knight because they're uh, Tuck Tuck is super anti-Semitic oh absolutely yes which is is you know considering how uh, not particularly interested in his vows he is <laughs> maybe. <laughs> His, his casual anti-Semitism would be uh, not not ex- it was unexpected, uh, but I think you know like the the role Rebecca plays in in the conversations with her father, um, and at, in the adaptations they show it, they tend to lighten up the anti-Semitism, which mm. I, I I guess you know you can't put that on television anymore. Uh, what would actually be in the book? I don't know, or in in the movies. But it's it would be and, dicey, I think now. <laughs> it's it's as it's as full of pathos mm. as as the the Merchant of Venice, which is you know it's directly quoted in one of the chapters. Um, he's he's dealing with something that is there and interesting. And going back to what I was saying about you know the influence of this book on the world, um, think of the role of of Churchill in you know. In versus Nazism, you know, the Jews, that's not the main focus of what's going on. Uh, you know, why they're fighting World War II. It's because of Poland and political machinations and you made us look bad and all that stuff. But they're in the background there is, and he's being unfair, right? The, the, the position of Jews in England is much better than in France, mm. in Poland, in in Germany, in Italy, anywhere else in Europe, uh, I guess other than Switzerland and, and England, the Jews are are getting completely killed. And so it's like, why why is it that English were slightly more accepting? It might just be something to do with Ivanhoe. It was incredibly well read. I can't imagine that uh, Churchill and every pretty much everyone else in power didn't read it. Well, this, it did also coincide historically with um, Acts of Parliament that um, got rid of a lot of the old standing statutes that mm. date back to, to this period that had Jewish people as second-class citizens and allowed them sure. full citizenship as British citizens. That was happening at the same time Ivanhoe was coming out. So it was really, um, for a historical novel, it was incredibly zeitgeisty. Um, it was, you know, it was it was looking at the past, but just as sci-fi, you know, traditionally sort of takes, he's, you know, he's filtering the present through a future lens. Ivanhoe is doing the same, but through, through a historical lens. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I know kind of over the years, it kind of, it did sort of fall out of fashion. It was a kind of a backlash, I suppose, because it had been so popular and a lot of people said, oh, it's actually not, it's not a very good adventure and his, his characters are all a bit middling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ivanhoe's a bit indecisive. He's not very heroic. But I think it's sort of yeah. critical opinions turning around a bit more now and going, well, actually, no, he's kind of, he was, that wasn't what he was intending. He was, it's was not meant to be a swashbuckler, um, like later books that it inspired were that adopt the action. This is, there's a lot of realism here. It's shades of grey. It's, you know, a, 
the, the heroics are real heroics of real people with real motivations, not cardboard cutout, you know, good guys, tough guys, bad guys. And, it, you know, it's got a lot more to say about than just telling a, a rousing boy's own adventure. It does. It, 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 it is... It has got that, and you can, you know, like I was saying, this slimmed down, you know, puffed up version is Prisoner of Zenda, where there's no uh, greater political, uh, I mean, it is completely puffy, right? There's no mm. meat on those bones. It's just fun, and you can see, you know, it being sort of a, a, a lighter, fluffier version of this. But this one, it, it, it is, his, it's, it's something about his, historical. The level of intellect required to be interested in reading this book seems to be a lot higher. I mean, the, the very first chapter, I, lo- I, I knew I wanted to read this book when uh, Girth and Wamba are, are talking about the etymology of pig. Right? <laughs> That's great. The, the, it's so good. The pork, pork is what gets served to the Norman because they're French, and swine is what we get served because we're... <laughs> we're we're uh, Saxons, right? The 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 fact that you know in 1066 the United uh, United Kingdom or well, I guess England was was invaded for the last time. The final sort of uh, major change to the language uh, is really important, and its after effects are being felt right in the beginning of this book, right? I mean, it's ahistorical. Um, there's lots of uh, things that are totally not. You know, the fact that Robin Hood and his merry men are wearing Lincoln green, I I just don't think that that's actually happening, right? There's a lot of ahistorical stuff going on. However, um, the fact that he's bringing such a big intellectual game to what is essentially a romantic adventure story um, makes every every bit where, you know, two guys meet, they, they really spar. The, the jousting is not just on the field. In fact... That final battle is so short, you know, where uh, Gua, uh, Brian Dubois Gilbert mm. and Ivanhoe finally, uh, you know, have it out over Rebecca. That is so such a short scene. Um, it's like a surprise. We're we're shocked, and then the the fallout from you know Richard and and you know who's getting who's getting appointed to what position and Ivanhoe's position and all that stuff that's much longer than the mm. actual battle because it's it's more it's more like what is the, you know what is the fallout from all this going to be it's very very powerfully intellectual book i mean for a piece of fiction you know <laughs> surprisingly so i think uh, very much so and surprisingly for the time um as i say i mean you can read novels written 50 years after this that are far more stodgy, dull <laughs> and obvious mm-hmm. um, where this has um, it's a big book but it's got a real punchiness to it there's a smartness to it, there's a subtlety to it that um, we, you won't see becoming common in novels until actually far later probably until Dickens um, you know because later novels, later Victorian novels to go back, say that to um, Girth and Womba, you wouldn't have peasant characters like that talking um, with the kind of wit and intelligence they do. Uh, no. You'd have, who are oh, me lords, you know, kind of yeah. typical thick peasant sort of talk. You know what I mean? They'd be um, a lot more what we'd call cartoony. And um, indeed, I mean, a lot of the social 
sort of realist novels of the later Victorians were the, highlighting the plight of the poor. The poor are written like proper thick yokels, uh, you know, and all, almost a comic effect reading it now. It's, you know, no. it comes across as, you know, patronizing uh, and shallow. Whereas this, you know, all the characters, no matter their social status, they're all actually rounded out. They've, they've got wit and they've got their own talents, their own intelligences, their own opinions. Um, and it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the other person who's read this book, I think, is uh, uh, J.K. Rowling, because uh, two or three of the names are right, um, right out of the... Uh, the first Harry Potter book, right? The, we've got the uh, Malvazoin, uh, one of the evil barons, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, who's the other guy? Um, uh, he's another bad guy. Valdemar? <laughs> uh, he's a baron? I can't remember. Uh, uh, so Voldemort is the flight of death. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, Ro- oh, Rowling's, Rowling's very canny. I mean, a lot of her her names have hidden meanings, or they're tipping the hat to sure. authors she's read. So it wouldn't surprise me that she. I mean, she, I mean, uh, she has lived in Scotland, and that's. I can't remember if she's actually Scottish or not, but uh, I'm fairly sure um, she'd be familiar with Walter Scott. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I mean, Scott himself. He uh, when he actually, you know, he had a career as a poet, um, and when he actually, you know, acknowledged authorship of these the this Waverley series of novels, he was dubbed the Wizard of the North. Huh. Uh, well, he had his, his own little castle, too, Abbotsford. Indeed. Um, do you, you know, uh, the, the influence of this book is incredible. One of the, wor- one of the words that uh, came out of this book, or not words, names, Cedric. Apparently, that, that was never before in the English language as a, a name. There was a, he, Walter Scott, like, miss, wrote, wrote down the name wrong, or just changed it. That's right. And so now anybody who's named Cedric today, they're named after this character <laughs> who is supposed to be a historical sort of figure. You know, it sounds like a sort of Saxon name, doesn't it? Yeah. But it, it also they, gave us the, the, the word, uh, the term freelance. Sure. Um, because of the mercenaries, the good, uh, the free companions mm-hmm. who are freelances. They are lances for hire. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's um, the the uh, there's a number of movies, I guess, that uh, you know took the little bits out of you know all the Robin Hood movies, right? They they are now so indebted to this book, obviously. You know, the uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, um, the uh, the newer Robin Hood with. Um, uh, the Australian actor, I can't remember. His oh, name. the uh, Ridley Scott one with Russell the Ridley Crow. Scott version. Yeah. Right. right. Um, that is uh, that that you know the plot of that is essentially this this plot. It, it, I mean, co- combining Robin Hood with with Richard is uh, from this book. Uh, there's a number of, of sorry. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, the uh, Robin Hood myth as we know it does come directly from Scott. I mean, the whole thing, um, there is manuscripts which say Robin was born in a village called Loxley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now we think of Robin Hood as Robin of Loxley. Mm-hmm. Um, where it, that, that derives from Scott, although here Loxley is, um, not, he's just, a, he's, um, 
not a nom de plume, but a nom de guerre he uses when he's undercover. Well, that mm-hmm. comes from Scott. Um, the whole thing of the, the Normans versus Saxons and, um, that, that's, that's, Scott's pretty much started that, added that to the Robin Hood myths here. Uh, so the arrow contest, the splitting of the arrow, that's Scott. <laughs> uh, Robin being a returning crusader, that's Scott. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, Robin Hood scholars have suggested that the, the romance between Robin and Maid Marian is very much yeah. indebted to the romance between Rowena and uh, Ivanhoe. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Ivanhoe's sort of um, heroic qualities were later transferred to Robin Hood outright. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, it's certainly, I mean, you can see if you watch, to what, what my mind is one of the, the, the better uh, renditions of the Robin Hood myth, the, uh, there's a, an ITV suit in the 80s, right. Robin of sure. Sherwood. So you good. can see so much of Ivanhoe and that kind of particular uh, historical Saxon-Norman take coming out that's of this. So, that's what I love about that show is they have both Robin Hoods, right? There's the sort of Saxon uh, Locksley yes. Robin Hood, mm. and then they have the disinherited... Uh, Earl uh, of Huntingdon. That's right. Mm. And the way they achieve that, uh, you know, it's like two different guys who are quote-unquote Robin Hood, that's the Dread Pirate Robert, uh, Dread Pirate Roberts as well, right? You know, yes, it's it's a business, it's a franchise. <laughs> it's a franchise, yeah. which I believe is actually, you know, what uh, Highway Robbers did, right? He's like, I'll train you up, my son, and then you can take over the business and buy it from me. <laughs> um, the the um that sh- that show is incredibly good. Um, I, I don't remember if it actually has Robin. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, Richard showing up. I can't remember that part. It does have Richard showing up. Okay. Uh, okay. Incognito as a knight. Um, nice. Uh, and also, it's similarly, it's similarly interesting. It's critical of Richard. Yeah. Uh, as well, because it's not a case of Richard turns up and because normally in a Robin Hood story, it's Richard returns at the end and that you know everyone's happily ever after, order is restored. It doesn't doesn't play out that that way in Robin's show. It's much more like this if where Richard turns up and actually there's a bit of grousing about him. Well, he should be being he's a, a good knight, but not he's a good, a good, no, king. good knight, but he should be being a proper king, not poncing about That's and right. having adventures. <laughs> he's he's an honourable knight, but a bad king. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's why they kind of love him is because he's so honorable and, you know, decent and all that stuff. But uh, what I also love about that Robin of Sherwood show is they, they have all the the elements uh, of, you know, all the Robin Hood mythos. Mm. But then they add in that uh, the sort of the it's hinted at in this book, the at the funeral of Athelstane, don't they have sort of, you know, they're, they're we're Christians, but really they're they're sort of almost pagans right they're quasi christian pagans and he i think cedric calls on on some non-christian gods at some point in the book uh they've got in that robin of sherman show they've got um they've got what's the the Hearn the hunter yeah Hearn the hunter mm. sort of the green man sort of mm. um uh a, a whole mythos with regards to uh you know the sword of albion and right it's 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 all of that sort of great uh, stuff. And all, apparently, uh, this book, Ivanhoe, is what made people interested in the Middle Ages. They were not super into it before that. And all the subsequent, you know, Arthurian uh, scholarship to, you know, bring those stories into popularity. That's like, uh, you know, going back and finding uh, uh, the, 
Chaucer and all that, that, you know, interest in middle, the Middle Ages was not there until he brought it into the forefront, according to the Wikipedia entry, anyways. Now, as I've read that on, on a few different things about this book, it did, um, so he was kind of, I think at that time Scott was writing, uh, no one could see past sort of the, the Shakespeare and Jacobean, um, writers and thinkers. They were, and then, there's a big, then there was the classics, the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, your Greeks and the Romans. And uh, nothing in between. Uh, nothing much had happened. It'd all been a bit crude. And this did, so it did read Red Wagner's interest. And, you know, the Victorians would go on to have a tremendous passion for the, uh, for all things medieval. And kind of, you know, there's so many kind of actually, um, what people take to be old folk customs being enacted mm-hmm. in towns and villages, um, were actually revived. In Victorian mm-hmm. times, and in some mm-hmm. cases made from the whole cloth, um, right. as part of this kind of medieval revival spirit. I mean, um, you know, it later, you know, extend to later Victorians and get into ancient Egypt, and there'll be a craze for that as well. But you know, you get like in the Victorian era, kind of you know, even kind of your know, druidry being revived, and um, you know, this tremendous passion. And and from this, you do get a lot of kind of the later kind of core Arthurian um, stories sort of being written. It's, it's, it's so, this book is so influential, it really can't understate it. You know, like, Connecticut Yankee and King, Arthur Court, uh, King Arthur's Court would not exist without this book, right? The, the, the satire that's going on there that's so good um, is based on the, on the fact that, you know, he's saying, look, you know, all these courtly things that, you know, you think are so... Uh, Cute and, and such. Uh, all the slavery that he has in that uh, fictionalized England, right, um, is the same kind of slavery as is in the fictionalized Ivanhoe, right? And mm-hmm. it's, it's it's about the American South. It's not about it's not about you know what's actually happening in England in that time period. Um, the the uh, the influence of this book it really I don't think can be understated because um, he he built a huge mansion. And that money was coming uh, to him anonymously, right? That was <laughs> that was nobody knew who he was except for his publishers, right? That's right, yes. <laughs> and not until 1827, I think, is is when people people figured it out or it was announced or whatever. This is an amazingly interesting and powerful book. And even if you know you say there's there's you know we look and we look hard and the closest we can come to finding the fantasy. Uh, connection is uh, is you know there's a witch in it who's not really a witch and there's no actual magic that's pretty weak. Well, the influence on writers of science fiction and fantasy. I mean, this is this is what George R. R. Martin is is working with, right? If you have there's not much jousting going on in um, in the 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 main novels of uh, Game of Thrones series. Um, but there is in the the, pre, the prequel series, which is set in sort of a more earlier medieval period, um, that's all about very much a Saxons versus Normans mm. jousting. Such th- that that would not exist without Ivanhoe, and that the machinations, the evil machinations, um, you know, that are s- supposed to be based on the War of the Roses, um, are more like him doing. Uh, an Ivanhoe version of the War of the Ro- Roses, you know, it's uh, with a little bit of dragon thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> um, very, 
you know, he's doing his own thing because he's he's making it sort of the anti Ivanhoe and that everybody dies. <laughs> but it's it's very much um uh inspired, I would say. I, in reading it I was thinking, oh, and this is this is kind of a, a similar situation. But it's it's very intellectual too. I, I really like this book a lot. It's one of those it's kind of I can understand why people would shy away from it, especially when they see it was published in eighteen forty. 1820. 1820. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. That's, you know, that's going to be leaden and dull. But, I mean, it, it is. It's got tremendous verve, and there's so much in it. Um, I mean, I mean, enough of this podcast, I really had to... <laughs> I'd underestimate how big it was and had to <laughs> speed read it. And I kind yeah, of, I, was, I, I, did, I, I regretted that because it was kind of... Um, it's, a real, it's a real book to, you know, to savour. Um, but even so, it's kind of... It's, for a big book, I don't think it's tremendously flabby. I think uh, no. just, there's, I mean, there's it, so it, much going on, there's so much dialogue and good dialogue and interesting characters. Um, it's not turgid or stolid in any way, and um, it's it's, a, it's surprisingly modern, uh, which I think you know all, all the good Victorian novels characters. are. In fact, mm. there's about a dozen characters. There's more. There's more than that who actually have names. There's about a dozen characters who have plot lines that go somewhere, they all have motivations, they all have their own intellectual uh, thing going on, and it doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just move characters around like chess pieces. It It's it's surprisingly symmetrical, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the, fir- the, you've got the first house uh, where everybody comes and meets, right? The um, uh, Cedric's uh, having... In one version, it's the uh, wedding feast for uh, Athelstane and mm. uh, Rowena. Um, they, they all come there, right? Ivanhoe's there, Gilbert's there. The only person who's not there is King John, right? Oh, no, and I guess the Black Knight. <laughs> um, and then they all go to the uh, the jousting. Um, then they have the archery contest. And then the real first uh, action takes place with uh, the... The castle, right? The castle attack, mm. and then subsequently there's the the uh, the roasting event at <laughs> <laughs> the end, and in between there's lots of chapters where things are getting rolling, right? Where you know Tuck is meeting the Black Knight and the Black Knight's uh, you know jousting with him, right? <laughs> in verbally, it's it's very well put together plotted novel. Apparently. Um, uh, Sir Walter Scott was in a lot of pain while writing this book, and I was, is this a tonic? <laughs> um, he, he had ga- uh, gallstones while writing the book, so it, uh, to escape the gallstones or uh, bladder stones, <laughs> whatever they are, um, he wrote this book. It, it is very much an escape, I would say. It's a good, fun escape. You, you really are with the book the whole time. I'm very impressed by it. Well, it's one of those I. I Having sort of revisited, I do reflect actually some of the movie and TV versions and various adaptations. I haven't really done it justice. Uh, no, but but now <laughs> with the so the likes of what I say is the hate the sort of kind style of uh, serialized TV novels that HBO have pioneered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone you know commission commission a version of Ivanhoe because you could really do. Um, 
you know, present this book in its true complexity of the interplay of characters. Mm-hmm. And it would work really, really well as that kind of a Game of Thrones or mm-hmm. a style series. And I think, you know, people would, you know, take it, take it to heart and really, you know, appreciate it afresh. I, I can't wholly recommend it, but the 1997 version is the best version I've seen as a uh, adaptation. There's there's a couple audio drama versions we know about. Um, there's a, a 52 movie version. There's an 82 movie version. But the 97 version has um, Siren Hines. I, I I don't know if you know that. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, he's a Irish actor. Who oh yes, yes. He's really good on screen, and he plays uh, Brian de Bois Gilbert, and he is masterful in this role. It's such a meaty role, and he plays villains incredibly well, um, and he's on screen a lot. It's almost as if it's the the show, like the Ivanhoe character, sort of, you know, people say he's sort of wishy-washy, or he's, I, I mean, I, he's not particularly fascinating character, okay? <laughs> Compared to the others, I think, you know, Wamba and, and uh, you know, every everybody else has something going on. He's sort of our, our viewpoint character. I get that. But uh, as played by Siren Hines, he's amazingly compelling. Mm. You know, you, you're, you're rooting for him to, to somehow get Rebecca to, to love him. Because, you know, and even the Rebecca, she's not, the acting's just not quite up to it, right? It's, he's so good at it. Um, and it really makes the focus uh, more about him <laughs> than it is about <laughs> anything else, which is great, which is great because, uh, you know, I've seen lots of different versions, I was, as I was saying, you know, a lot of times they just focus on lots of jousting. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. So it's fun. It's mm. fun. And the Robin Hood does, um, in some versions, does over overshadow Ivanhoe quite badly. It does, yeah. Uh, he was uh, he played uh, Dumbledore in the Deathly Hallows movie version. Uh, that's the actor I'm talking about, Siren Hines. Oh right. Um, I, I've seen him in a lot of things. Oh, he he's also in uh, Game of Thrones as well. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a really good scenery chewer. I, he's played like evil Russian presidents or something, you know, something. <laughs> uh, some sort of Shakespearean actor turned uh, Hollywood actor means you play evil Russian president. <laughs> <laughs> If you're doing Shakespeare, you can often get a good career as doing villain parts in Hollywood yeah. and American TV, it seems. You show up and uh, some, you know, Ben Stiller comes and kills you or some, some, <laughs> some uh, young Hollywood actor comes and kills you as, as you're chewing up the scenery. <laughs> um, which is which is very much, I think, uh, also Ivanhoe, where they take some... You know, sort of half actor, uh, <laughs> screenwriter guy. Um, they put him in as the main character and then they get a really good Hollywood actor, uh, really good British actor to play the villain, right? So it's, it's kind of like Mark Hamill versus, versus, um, you know. Well, uh, that, that was the Costner it, version of it, Robin Hood. Right? Of, uh, <laughs> wait, that was the Costner version of Robin Hood where Costner oh, should sure. have been replaced with, um, I don't know, um, a sideboard or a wardrobe or, or something wooden. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you got Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham stealing oh, what the a great, show. Great show. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, he does totally steal the show. And that's, that's, that's what happens here. Except it's, it's very, it's full of pathos. With Alan Rickman, it's more comedic. Mm. It's, uh, he, he plays the villain so, so well, but it's, it's, you know, 
it's it's a lighter tone, whereas this is you know deadly serious. I love I just love the aspect that you know I throw away my God, I throw away religion. Just don't, and I'll even throw away my life. I'll lose this battle for you, Rebecca. Just tell me you want me to, and he can't do it. She she won't she won't she won't even give him an inch, and so he fights his heart out and loses apparently. Even though he's the best soldier ever, I love win, love triumphs. You know, he got the power of God or whatever. <laughs> Ivan Hope defeats the uh, the evil. I mean, that's 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 the totally noir dark ending averted, right? If if the hero doesn't, if the boy's own adventure doesn't turn out the way we hope and expect it to, oh my God, this story would be the darkest novel ever. <laughs> That's we spent true. all this time trying to save poor Rebecca. You know, all of this blood and treasure spilt over. You know, he's just been reunited with Rowena after, you know, 20 years at war or whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, he loses his life and so does Rebecca. Wow. <laughs> Deep dark ending. That'd be the George Martin version. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>